supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. AM 1420 WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa. Science advisor Matt Moniz is, uh, well, he's hanging out at Lizzie Borden's tonight, so he's uh, he's working over there tonight, missing the show. No paycheck for him. No soup for him either. <laughs> and of course, uh, we are here to talk about the paranormal as we, each in our, as we are each and every Saturday night, but tonight we're going to talk about tomorrow's upcoming South Coast Toy and Comic Show. We're very excited uh, because last time it was such a great success, and I can only imagine it's going to build on uh, what happened with the, the last one. Uh, didn't you say that it was, uh, we have Steve and Mark from the South Coast Toy and Comic Show with us. Didn't you guys say that last time was a, a bigger crowd than the one before it? Oh, yeah. Yes, definitely. So then if it grows exponentially, <laughs> I can only imagine what it's going to be like. Because I sat there at, at the table last time just watching everybody go by and seeing everybody generally excited to be there. And not only that, but people who were long-lost friends of each other, you know? Hey, mm-hmm. I remember you from that show in, you know, 94. And uh, it's it's definitely a, a community that needed a, a place to come and hang out, and you guys put it all together. So thank you thank from you. all of us fellow toy and comic <laughs> nerds. <laughs> so uh, the show is tomorrow from 10 to 4 at the Seaport Inn in Fairhaven. Uh, tickets are only $6, so you want to make sure that uh, you come on down. And there's still a dollar off coupon, too, on the website, too, right? Yes. yes. Southcoasttoyandcomic.com, which is linked up to SpookySouthCoast.com, but... Let's go over real quick just some of the because we're up against the clock already. Thanks, yeah. thanks, Red Sox. But let's go over some of the uh, some of the attractions that you'll have tomorrow before we get into our very special guest who's in the studio with us. The the one that I'm excited to see, the General Lee's going to be there. Oh yes, yeah. General Lee's is going to be there. Batmobile, Batcycle. That's go, better. <laughs> and uh, and you've also got some celebrities as well. Yes, we do. Um, we have Larry Thomas, who played the Soup Nazi on Seinfeld. We have Mitzi Capture from Baywatch and Silk Stockings. We have Penny Dreadful. She's coming back to, with us one more time. And we also have from Glow, Gremlina, who is here with us today. And thank you for joining us here in the Spooky Studio. Not a problem. It, and I, I, I'd like to tell you that you're the first gremlin or gremlina that we've had in the studio, but this studio has been full of gremlins since we started coming in We're here. We're everywhere. <laughs> we, we are everywhere. And I'm glad it's not midnight, and I'm glad the water's in a bottle. You know what they say about getting us wet and feeding us after midnight. Well, I think there might be some chicken in the fridge, so, you know. Ooh, midnight. And so, <laughs> is this your first visit to our area? Yes, it is. I've never been uh, to New England. This is my first time up here. Okay. We didn't have a whole lot of time to set up. We were only hanging around the studio talking <laughs> for the last 45 minutes. Uh, so, and we were talking off the air before we came on the air about your experiences with Glow. And for those that don't remember, definitely jump on YouTube and, and see some of these old clips because it was better marketed wrestling than there was at the time, you know, with WWF. I, I think. When you look back, well, I'm sorry, WWE, I don't want to get sued. But when you look back at the time, you know, they were kind of coasting on their ever-growing popularity, and Glow was taking a lot of risks and a lot of uh, different ideas and different approaches that other promotions weren't doing. 
How many gremlins have you ever seen wrestle? <laughs> <laughs> well, now they have leprechauns and everything else, but... Yeah, 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 hornswoggle. <laughs> I could take him. Uh, probably. Uh, so what was, what's one of the most outstanding memories of your time in GLOW? Just a phenomenal group of strong, intelligent, talented, creative, empowered ladies. I mean, we came from all over the country, and we put together a cohesive unit that just, it worked. I mean, here we are 23 years later, and people are still talking about GLOW, wanting to know about GLOW. Mm-hmm. Watching it on YouTube, friending all of us glow girls on Facebook, asking us questions, you know, and my fa- I, my favorites the people who trade the DVDs of the VHS tapes that they made. Yes, and I I thank them because it was because of that I got a DVD of all my matches, oh, which wow. I was happy to receive because you got to realize we taped they didn't air for six or we taped in. My time, my time of taping was September. Uh, actually, we started training in September. We started taping in October, November. So you got October, November, December, January. We were on tour in South, and we came back. And I taped my final match in November of 1988. Those did not air till September of '88. Wow. So you know, because it took time for the production. They had to film the skits, do the cleanup, do the editing. So a lot of it I didn't get to see because I was traveling and doing other things, and I'd gotten out of GLOW at the time. So it was a trip down memory lane when the fan said, hey, you know, I know you're very personal personal girls and you don't like to, but I have a DVD of all your matches I want to send to you. And I was, like, so touched. And it it brought back some fond memories watching it. It was good times. Well, was Glow the end of your experiences in wrestling, in the ring, in wrestling? No. Actually, I did one match outside of Glow in Virginia, where I'm from, for the Virginia Championship Wrestling Association. This was back in 91, 92. And I did one match for that federation because they had a young lady they wanted to get ring experience and give her her start and push and I just happened to be in the area you know how we gremlins just pop up (laughs) and seeing that I'm from under a rock it was easy to find a rock to crawl out of but I wasn't gremlina then I was a different character but I was still a bad girl so and currently I am starting to work with and enjoying a good relationship with Vanguard Championship Wrestling in Virginia. And to all the Glow fans and Gremlina fans out there, you may be seeing me return to the ring real soon. More to come. Follow me on my Facebook page, but it's looking like I might be causing havoc at ringside again. <laughs> Very nice. Well, you know, you mentioned playing the bad guy role or the heel, as, as they say in wrestling. and. Mm-hmm. That's got to be so much more fun than being a good guy. Well, I can't speak for the good girls because the the ladies I worked with, I I applaud all of them, good, bad, indifferent, because they all worked their buttocks off. We, I mean, we lived together, we sweated together, we bled together, we felt each other's hurts when we were injured. You know, we went to the emergency room and people got hurt. So it's hard to say, but from my experience, 
Yeah, bad girls rock. <laughs> we we uh, we uh, we had our fun, and it is fun because you can get out there and you can just sort of get in the fans' faces and just sort of have a ball. I mean, there's nothing like being booed by fifty or sixty people <laughs> or but, more. You know that you're over too as a heel when. You know, the, the the baby face will come out and throw out their T-shirt or throw out their water ball, and everybody tries to grab it. But when you throw something out and then they throw it back, that's when you know you're <laughs> over. Well, I knew I was over when I saw my matches on tape, when I heard the ring, the color commentator. Some of the comments he made and the reaction that the audience had to it, I was like, yeah, you did your job. Because <laughs> he would say stuff like, the little maggot, he called me the evil dwarf. He said, I gave Freddy Krueger nightmares. Oh, that's a great line. But you know what? I met Robert England, and he hasn't had a nightmare. <laughs> sure he sleeps very well. I think my favorite line from the ring announcer was, in Gremlina's fairy tales, the dragon always wins. <laughs> that's great so, stuff. Yeah, and like I said, the reaction of the crowd, you kind of know you're over. And you really know you're over when they're trying to take your whip out of your hand. That's takes guts. <laughs> well, it was different in, in, in your time. It was different because that fourth wall hadn't been broken down yet. And, uh, you know, for I don't want to throw out wrestling terms because we're all wrestling fans and wrestler, you know, and people that are somewhat knowledgeable about the business, so we don't want to start getting into it. But basically, I don't know if people realize this or not, but wrestling isn't fake. It's not fake. Everybody that says that, you don't know it's what true. you're talking about. Um, um, if you want to ask a glow girl if it's fake, one of our glow girls had 13 operations on her collarbone. Gee. Two of our girls, myself as one, blew their knee out. It was infamous back in the 80s. The injury to Susie Spirit's elbow, mm -hmm. which was repeatedly shown, sweethearts, that was real. Susie really did get hurt. We had people dislocate their shoulders, get concussions, get contusions, knees out, rotator cups, ACLs. If you want to call it fake, I challenge anyone to go to a wrestling school near them mm -hmm. and get in a ring for five minutes and get slammed. Take a hit on that mat. You know, that's all it'll take you to figure out, is it fake? But at the same time, though, how hard was it to keep up that appearance, to to keep up the idea that you were your character, and to kind of live that heel role whenever you came in contact with the fans? Well, obviously you hear me talking now. It was really difficult because, as we were discussing before we went on air, the producer and director was very much staying character. Well, it's kind of hard to talk like this all the time and shriek and go, yep, when you actually sound like this. I mean, I would come out of a show, because we usually tape three or four matches per night mm -hmm. per girl. I mean, I did three matches a night. Other girls did three matches a night. I mean, we worked. We were taping from 6, 30, 7 o'clock in the evening until 11, 30, 12 o'clock at night. Wow. I mean, we had to get every show we could in the can. And when you're doing what I just did for hours and having to be heard five, ten rows back, I would walk out of there with no voice by the end of the night and then have to get up and do my rap and then go in Monday and have to start all over. So by 
the next week, my voice was back, and I had to ruin it all again. <laughs> but it, it was it's hard because I, I remember my last match, this little eight-year-old girl. I was, I was back. I got dumped in a trash can my last match. I figured if I'm going out, I'm going out with a bang. So Gremlina got trashed, literally. <laughs> and I came back out of the dressing room to watch the show. And I was standing in the backstage area. This little eight-year-old girl was in tears. And it was so hard because she was going, Mommy, I don't want Grimlina to go. I like Grimlina. And she was so tore up. She goes, did Grimlina get hurt being thrown in the... (laughs) And I looked at the producer and went, screw this. And I walked up and I said, Honey, I'm okay. I said, You don't have to worry about me. I'm okay. And she just looked wide-eyed. And I'm like, Yes. I'm talking to you normal. I said, I'm okay. You don't, don't cry. And she calmed down. But that was just shocking to know that it affected, you know, this evil screeching, jumping up and down, pounding, beating on people. And this little kid was crying because she thought I got hurt. And at those times, that's hard to stay in character. Oh, that was about the same age I was when, and by the way, I just want to point this out, Steve Mark, that that's, we're two for two getting the guests to scream when you guys are well, <laughs> on the <yeah>. show. <laughs> but uh, uh, when I was about eight or nine years old, my dad took me to some matches up at the garden, and that's when Macho Man was with, uh, with Sherry. And oh, full-out heel, and, uh, and so uh, we ran into them in the hallway because they used to have to walk in that little section of the hallway before they went to the back, and my dad brought me up there, and I was yelling at Sherry. I was like, you're up. You know, using every word that I shouldn't have been using. And Macho Man got right up in my face and said, Ooh, you don't talk to a lady like that. <laughs> Needle excitement? Snap into a Slim Jim. So, uh, but we were also talking uh, off the air, and, and we've got about 10 minutes left. So if anybody does want to call in and ask some questions for Gremlina, you can give us a call at 508 996 1-877-996-1420. But we got to keep calls limited to just this topic because we are up against the clock. Thanks again, Red Sox. That was a spring training game, too, by the way. It doesn't count for anything. It's but not wrestling. It's not a real sport. I'm sorry. There you go. There you go. Uh, but we were, we were talking uh, a little bit off the air, too, about how today you do this. <laughs> You're a, a radio host yourself. Yes, I'm an Internet radio co-host for Blog Talk Radio, Cloverleaf Radio, Blog Talk Radio. We do an average of one to three, to sometimes three shows a week, depending on how many guests we can book in a month. And it's a blast. I love talking with the guests. I love getting the callers in. I like interacting and putting my two cents in sometimes when it's not needed. <laughs> and I like throwing curveballs because I've asked male wrestlers, well, what did you think of GLOW? I mean, I put them on the spot. What did you think of GLOW? How does it compare to the divas today? What do you think it did for the females today that are wrestling? And I have to say, I've gotten a lot of respect. I mean, they really respected what we did. And back then, everybody was like, oh, it's camp. It's a TNA show. It's campy. It's, you know, yeah, but you watched it, didn't you? (laughs) Camp got you in, and then the athleticism and the storylines and the performers kept you watching. But, yes, one of my childhood dreams... Well, one of my two childhood dreams was to do something in wrestling and to work on the radio. So I got lucky. I've been able to do both. Well, and and something else that you're interested in also lends itself perfectly to our show. Uh, I hear that you're a paranormal investigator now as well. Not officially. 
I went well, to the Lizzie Borden house today. We'll make you an official. If you went to Lizzie Borden's and you are now officially a paranormal investigator. Taps, do you hear me, Grant? Jason, you had the Miz on. You've had other wrestlers on. I think it's time for a gremlin to be on Ghost Hunters. There you go. Or Ghost Adventures. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not shy. You hear that, Jeff? Their their writer is a good friend of ours. We'll see if we can. I am not shy. <laughs> I would love. I, I, I even say it on my Facebook page. What about Gremlin on Ghost Hunters or Ghost Adventures? We're better. Have a gremlin go ghost hunting. Absolutely. But, yes, I've been interested in the paranormal since I was a kid. I've had my own experiences in my hometown. And I've just been thrilled with the surge of it on TV. I'm a faithful viewer of ghost hunters, ghost adventures, paranormal state. Anything to do with ghost or paranormal, I'm watching. And going to the Lizzie Borden house was a third dream of mine because... When I was in high school, I was given the writing assignment to do a book report and a term paper on Lizzie Borden, Charlie Manson, and Jack the Ripper. My teacher thought it would scare me. I got an A. (laughs) And after that, it's been like paranormal and true crime. So. Well, did you have any experiences while you were over there? Anything happened? Lizzie Borden House. Actually, I was telling the young lady I went with. When we were upstairs, there were times where I was having trouble breathing. I was feeling a tightness and a closeness, and it just, I wasn't scared, it wasn't dread, but it was just like hard to sometimes catch my breath, and I felt like a buzzing and ringing in my ears, and it's just a feeling that, and maybe it's because I was there, and I knew where I was, Mm -hmm. but I felt that house has energy. It's got something. Maybe if I stay overnight, which I'm planning on doing, or come back and look around some more, who knows? But from my own personal experiences, and I have to go with the TAPS team, you know, personal experiences are great, but evidence, personal experiences, yeah, I had some. Fact is, I I sat on the couch where Mr. Borden died, and I sat on Lizzie's bed, and the house has definitely got some energy, and it was a very unique experience. Well, we'll definitely have to get you back up. See, because, you know, as, as our buddy Matt Moniz, who would normally co-host the show with us, would say, we have our own key. And oh, so sweet. We, we get to go in there in the wintertime when there's nobody around. So awesome. We'll have to have you come up, and we'll give you the full-out paranormal tour. I'd love it, because, like I said, if I, uh, like I said, taps, if you're listening, I'm available for shows. Um, <laughs> um, it's a dream. It's fun. And... God knows I live in a city that's pretty haunted itself, so. Well, we'll we'll show you some of ours, and then when we get a chance, we'll go down there and you can show us some of Oh, yeah. Uh, I, got, I was telling Crystal, I have some spots for you, anybody that wants to come down and investigate. <laughs> there you go. All right, so the show is tomorrow. It's from uh, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Seaport Inn in Fairhaven. It's only $6 to get in. You can still get that dollar off coupon if you go to southcoasttoyandcomic.com. Gremlina will be there. You can talk to her about Glow. You can talk to her about wrestling. You can talk to her about the paranormal. I know there's going to be a ton of paranormal investigators there from the area. And I'm a comic and toy geek, so I'm going to be like a kid in a candy store. (laughs) There you go. Okay? You can meet her. You can meet uh, Mitzi Capture from Baywatch. You can meet Larry Thomas, the soup Nazi. And I'm I'm going to bring my son because he's been working on this for like two weeks now. He's he, he just plans on walking right up to him and saying, 
no soup for you. <laughs> I said, I'm sure people tell him that all the time, Sonny goes, but nobody says it like I do. <laughs> so, I've threatened to bite his ankles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there you go. And he's like, well, I'll give you the small soup. You, you can have that. <laughs> all right. So uh, SouthCoastToyAndComic.com is the website. Again, it's tomorrow from 10 to 4 at the Seaport Inn and Marina. And are you guys already planning on having another one later on in the year? Or? Yes, we are. Yeah. Next one is June 12th. June 12th. That's, that's pretty quick. Oh, yeah. Anything lined up for that that you want to reveal yet? or Not yet. All right. Very soon. You'll be the first to know. <laughs> All right. Sounds good to me. All right. So when we, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking with uh, David Halpern, who's the author of the new book, Journal of a UFO Investigator. And it's a novel, but it's a novel that comes based in his own experiences. And he's also a professor of religion as well. We're going to talk to him about how that ties into the idea of UFO investigation. Uh, we've also we've got some friends out in the field uh, this weekend who are really doing a whole bunch of stuff, and time is going to keep us from checking in with them all. But we want to say hi to Tom D'Agostino and the Johnsons and everybody down at the uh, Haunted Mansion in Gardner, uh, the Haunted Victorian Mansion in Gardner. Again, we mentioned Matt Moniz is somewhere over at Lizzie Borden's house. So if you didn't see him, he's probably hanging out in the basement. I can always go ax him. Yeah, <laughs> go right ahead. <laughs> and uh, we also want to say hi to John Brightman, who has uh, been down at a... Uh, uh, phenomenology down there in Gettysburg and he's been broadcasting on Spooky TV as well and some of his interviews are actually up there on the Spooky TV uh, on demand page. If you go to SpookySouthCoast.com slash Spooky TV and then you click on the actual Ustream window it'll bring up our Ustream page and you can see some of the archive videos he talked with Debbie and Mark Constantino, uh, Chris Dedman, uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, John Zaffis, so there's a, a number of good interviews from down there. Thank you, John, for doing that. And that's something that we're going to be doing with Spooky TV. We're going to be able to take it out into the field and out to some of these conventions as well. So be sure to check that out. And uh, who knows? You know, you know, you're an Internet radio, an Internet broadcasting pro. We've got plenty of programming to fill on Spooky TV. Maybe you can do a paranormal show for us. I'm easy to find. There you go. <laughs> I... I crawled out as my fans say wow when you crawled out from under your rock this time you came out for good <laughs> <laughs> and uh and if you ever need if you ever need anybody that can actually uh you know wrestle a match you know investigator versus investigator i nominate Moniz. Okay, sounds like a plan um put him through a table you want you him know? hurt please because remember i carry a whip and chain yeah, but he likes that. <laughs> then it's no fun. <laughs> it is for him. If they like it, it's no fun for me. <laughs> All right. Well, we, uh, we'll be right back after a quick break for the news. And when we come back, like I said, we will have David Halpern, author of Journal of a UFO Investigator. So stay tuned for that. And be sure to join in in the discussion as well in the chat room on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. And you can also call in 508 508- Nine nine six zero five hundred one eight seven seven nine nine six fourteen twenty, or email us spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com, and we'll be right back with more of Spooky South Coast. You're a coward. You got nothing to be afraid of. Step aside, I'll show you. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. Oh my! Oh, woe is me! All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa. Science advisor Matt Moniz is somewhere out there. And uh, we are back. And what a great time we had talking with Gremlina and the guys from South Coast Touring Comic Show. Uh, it's happening again tomorrow uh, from 10 to 4 
at the Seaport Inn and Marina right here in Fairhaven. And I'll be there for a little bit. And we just found out that uh, big-time wrestling fan Eddie's going to be there. So it'll be great to see him again. Remember Eddie? You met Eddie before. I, know, I can't believe he's still listening. He is. He, he's a big fan of the show. All right. Well, joining us now, we're going to switch gears a little bit. We're going to speak with David Halpern. He's the author of the new book, Journal of a UFO Investigator. And uh, David is actually, uh, since the 1960s, he was a teenage UFO investigator. He later became a professor of religious studies, his specialty, religious traditions of heavenly ascent. From 1976 through 2000, he taught Jewish history in the religious studies department at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Now retired from teaching, he lives in North Carolina with his wife, Rose. Journal of a UFO Investigator is his first novel, and his website is davidhalperin.net, which is linked up on SpookySouthCoast.com as well. Good evening, David. Thank you for joining us on the show. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Now, i got to admit, I'm not really following the tournament right now, but uh, was UNC, uh, w- were they involved? Were they doing good? Well, I'm going to have to make a similar admission. Okay. I'm not following it either. All right, good. No, normally, we uh, the only attention that we pay to the tournament here is when it bumps us off the air, and thankfully we're not carrying it anymore. Okay. So. All right. Well, I've been I've been reading Journal of a UFO Investigator, and I want to say it's a it's a great story. And what I was first impressed with when I opened up the package uh, from the mail was the cover of the book. It actually looks like somebody's journal. Isn't that stunning? That is amazing. They did a they did such a beautiful job with that. And this is your first novel, right? This is my first novel, yes. And with all your uh, years of experience of investigating UFOs, what was it that made you decide that when you were going to sit down and put something, you know, put pen to paper, that it was going to be a, a fictional novel? Well, I sort of got beyond the UFOs, or thought I did, when I went off to college. And I started studying ancient languages. I started studying the Bible and Jewish history. And lo and behold, what I found myself being attracted to was the vision of Ezekiel with his wheels and an ancient form of Jewish mysticism in which people believed that they went on journeys to Ezekiel's chariot, which was a kind of experience which later on I realized was an ancient version of the UFO abduction. Mm. And I had the sense that the farther I got away from UFOs, the more I thought I'd put UFOs in my past, the more they seemed to follow me. So finally I decided to turn around and face my ufological past and see what it meant. And the best way I knew to do that was to tell a story. And that's what I did. And you can tell from the story, though, that uh, I'm guessing that this character of Danny Shapiro is somewhat auto, you know, autobiographical to yourself. Somewhat autobiographical, yes. I mean, so uh, at times people have asked me how autobiographical is the book, and the answer I've given them is that uh, the car chases, the intergalactic sex, and the descent into the netherworld are all autobiographical but other parts I made up. <laughs> but in truth, I mean, what, you know, those, what, 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 what is autobiographical is that I did spend my adolescence watching my mother slowly die, that that's the situation Danny finds himself in, and that the way I coped with that was to become a ufologist, a UFO investigator. 
And at, at that time, uh, I can't imagine that it was like it is now where, you know, we're besieged by the paranormal and, and besieged by UFO uh, every day on the History Channel and the Discovery Channel. Uh, back then, it must have been kind of a very close-knit, very small community. Yeah, and what's incredible is that the community of those days, I mean, it survives today. Mm -hmm. That in the past months, I've reestablished contact with about half a dozen people whom I knew 45, 50 years ago in connection with ufology. And they're still in the field and they're still still plugging away? Yeah, they're uh, they're still fascinated by it. And I guess when you got involved with it that many years ago, you probably figured that by now we'd have more answers than we do. Oh, yeah. I mean, we well, uh, it, it, there's a yes and no there. We were all predicting that within a year and a half, two years at most, the UFOs would reveal themselves and all of human history would be changed mm-hmm. and the world would be transformed. And if you were like me... You believe that we were probably going to be invaded. Except that I don't know that we really believed that. I mean, I still went ahead and thought about applying to college and taking uh, my standard exams and that kind of thing. So I think there was a belief, but which I guess we really did believe, but at some level... I don't think we did. Uh, am I making sense here? No, ab- absolutely. Uh, we, we hear, you know, each and every year, I mean, we have Stephen Bassett on the show uh, all the time, and each year it seems like we're getting closer and closer to disclosure, to the government admitting what they know and to there being uh, more information forthcoming. And in the novel, uh, you definitely hint at the idea that there is a, an intelligence network that's working to suppress or forward information. Yeah. I mean that's part of the, the that's part of the apparatus of the novel which which rests in the mythology of UFOs of the 1950s and 1960s you, you know the whole thing the the men in black in their pre-Hollywood form mm-hmm. that there's th- usually it's a trio three men in black who visit those who've discovered or come close to discovering the truth about UFOs and terrorize them into silence. And that was, that was part of the, the mythology of the times, and that's what I drew upon for the novel. Well, what's fascinating too is the character of Danny seems to go through a period where he's trying to learn more about religion and try to learn more about the Bible and, and why. Yeah. You know, and I won't give away the plot points as to actually why he is, uh, you know, going through this. But it it seems like he's uh, going through a, a journey of discovery that you probably went through yourself when you were the same age in terms of, of religion. Absolutely, which is how I became a professor of religious studies. And so it's it's just it's an interesting jump, I think, <laughs> for someone who. Uh, investigates UFOs and looks at this greater intelligence uh, to start analyzing the greatest intelligence. I mean, it, it's, it seems like you might have been willing to uh, look into areas that other ufologists might not have been. A lot of them kind of shut out the idea of religion and any possibility of crossover. Yeah, I think par- partly because UFOs serve part of the function of a religion. 
How so? Uh, well, I think at bottom they're about death. And I think you, uh, I mean, there's a, it was a Unitarian minister who died a couple of years ago, Forrest Church, who said that what religion is, is our response to the dual reality that we're alive and we know we're going to die. And I think that at bottom, UFOs are about that ultimate alienness. The, the death that's a part of me, that, that's born with me, that grows with me, and yet is the most alien thing that I can try to conceive. Well, I understand the, the idea though that, you know, People do need to have the the belief in a greater being, and they need to have a belief that uh, you know there's something greater than just what we experience here on this earth. But uh, I think where a lot of the lines get blurred, we've had guests on. I don't I don't want to name any names, but we've had guests on here that have uh, indicated that you know aliens are subservient to God. Therefore, you can invoke the name of God <laughs> when dealing with them, and they'll leave you alone. I, I think that too many people try to look at them as being uh, separate. When I look at it, I look at it more of the idea of these ancient visitors maybe being these gods that we've we've learned about in the past. That is to say that the god. Well, the, I, I'm not sure what what you mean by that. Is it sort of like von Daniken? Yeah, like the von Daniken beliefs, and you know the idea that these ancient astronauts came back and they uh, came here and they gave their their science to the people, or they displayed their science to the people and were treated as godlike figures. Yeah, which is, I mean, I've read a number of discussions of the vision of Ezekiel, which argue just that, that what Ezekiel saw was a spaceship that he described in the best way he can. He could uh, in the 6th century BCE. But I would be more interested in flipping it around. What if, I mean, and I think there is some continuity between Ezekiel's vision and the UFOs, but what if, the UFOs are a religious vision in a modern technological disguise. Well, that's a, a very, very interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. I mean, you, you, uh, like Jacques Vallée, uh, almost 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago, argued, he, point, he pointed out that UFOs have a lot in common with myths about fairies and elves. Mm-hmm. And he might have deduced from that that UFOs don't exist any more than fairies and elves do, but he took a very different tack, and I think a much more interesting one, which is that there's some phenomenon outside our regular range of experience which different cultures experience and translate into the realities of their own culture. It's... We live in an age with flying machines and spaceships, so that whatever we experience, we translate into technology. But that being said, though, I mean, a lot of these uh, abduction phenomena cases that we hear about, you know, they're not particularly pleasant experiences. So if, if a UFO is a modern-day, uh, I don't know, like a modern-day boarding bush almost, a modern-day modern yeah. prophecy, uh, then what would be the, the connotation then to have these negative experiences associated with them? My guess is that the unconscious material that came out for Ezekiel, that came out for the ancient Jewish mystics, uh, 
who tried to replicate Ezekiel's vision and the unconscious material that's coming out in the alien abduction stories is often fairly unpleasant. Mm. I mean, I think that the UFOs are about our hopes and about our dreams, but I think they're also about our terrors. Well, the the book opens with uh, with, with Danny's uh, vision of a UFO, uh, and and his experience at, at very close encounter. Did did you have a similar type experience when when you were that age? No, but I had this idea, and I remember that at age thirteen, I was absolutely sure that I could look up into the heavens and I would see a luminous red disk blazing its way across the skies. I never saw that. But I imagined myself very vividly seeing it, and I was convinced that I could see it, I might see it, I would see it. It was there for me to see. Mm-hmm. So that, what would you call it, that, that fantasy, that imagining, that expectation, was what I drew on in writing the first chapter. So for you, it was uh, the faith in the existence of UFOs then was similar to the faith of someone who believes that, you know, God is there. I don't have to see him. I don't have to, you know, uh, interact with him one-on-one. I just know that he's there. And and for you, it was a similar uh, type uh, of faith. I think so. I think so. And I would go a step further and say that the reason why we believe is that in some way that belief mirrors something which we know to be true from our experience, and we don't have any other way to say it. Well, in your research and in your years of studying religion, and especially, you know, the Jewish religion, uh, are there a lot of these, um, you know, you mentioned Ezekiel, but are there a lot of these instances where you look back and you say, hey, what they're describing there could have been one of these UFO encounters if they truly are beings from another planet. This could have been uh, an instance where that happened. Well, I wouldn't put it that way. I mean, I wouldn't put it that they're from another planet because I don't really think UFOs have anything to do with life on other planets. I think they're about us, and they're about our terrors and about our hopes and particularly about our confronting the end of our existence. So, yeah, I... I keep running into things when I study religious traditions that seem to me to be under the skin related to modern UFOs, but not at all that they're misinterpreted spacecraft. I think it's probably, it's, it's probably truer to say that when we see UFOs or talk about UFOs, they're misinterpreted angels than to say that angels are misinterpreted spacecraft. I think both are false statements, Mm -hmm. but I think the angels are probably closer to the reality. See, and I think we're talking about some of what (laughs) UFO scientists, and I'm, I'm... I hate using air quotes, but I'm doing that. Uh, and Matt Moniz would kill me if he was here, our co-host, who's uh, been studying UFOs for, for 30 years. Uh, but I think a lot of these, especially the modern-day ufologists, would uh, totally dismiss the idea that a UFO is just basically a mythological thing. It's it's basically the reflection, like you're saying, of our fears. It's the modern, I don't want to say boogeyman, but the modern you know object lesson for us. 
I know, I mean, and, and some people whom I very highly respect, I know totally disagree with me. And I, I, I just have to say that we, 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 we stand in disagreement. Uh, the only thing I would insist on, and I would hope none of your listeners misunderstand me, is that when I'm, when I say that UFOs are a myth, which I think they are, I don't mean, by myth, I don't mean bunk, hooey, nonsense, the usual things that people attach to the word myth. Mm-hmm. I use it much more the way Carl Jung did, that this is something tremendously important that leads us into the deepest places of the human soul and may tell us more about reality than any science ever could. See, we're, we're meeting some skepticism on the chat room uh, at SpookySouthCoast.com of, of exactly what you're saying, people who are kind of locked into that idea of a myth being fictional. and uh, But a, a true myth isn't a work of fiction, it's a work of reflection. I would say that the true myth is the work of something coming. I mean, if you, if you restrict yourself to the Freudian slant on, on, on psychology, it's coming from the deepest parts inside us. And if you're willing to take the further step with Jung, which I am, that it's something which comes from the unconscious of our whole species and is bigger than you, is bigger than me, and is probably truer than anything we perceive in concrete reality. Well, why don't we take a break? Uh, when we come back, we'll throw the phone lines open, if that's uh, all right with you, David. And if anybody sure. wants to call in and discuss, you can give us a call at 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420. You can also email us, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com, and you can also post your questions in the chat room on Spooky TV. We'll be right back with more with our guest, David Halpern. He's the author of Journal of a UFO Investigator. Uh, it's uh, his first novel, and it's available uh, just by clicking right on the link on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. I will amuse myself with terror. From the studios of AM 1420 WBSM, into the night and beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. Well, the news of the song has been a crime and rap. I've known the water, seen it on the ground. First thing I seen when I saw it land, cast jumped out in the country band. I saw the rock and roll. All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa. Science advisor Matt Moniz is out in the field. And we are talking with author David Halpern. His new book, his first book, is Journal of a UFO Investigator. And uh, it's set in the uh, the turbulent times of the 1960s. And uh, one of the questions that popped up in the chat room, David, was if mm-hmm. David's, uh, I'm sorry, if uh, Danny's, <laughs> see, it's definitely uh, autobiographical, is if Danny's approach uh, to ufology and, and his studying of the, of the science would be any different had he lived in 2011 as opposed to the 60s. Boy, now that is a really good question. I don't know that he would have gone into ufology. I don't know that that would have been an option for him today. From what I understand, that teen ufology network that 
I was able to make myself a part of and that Danny also does, although uh, that, that isn't described explicitly in the novel, that I don't think that exists today. I don't know what a kid who's under the kind of pressures Danny was under would do in 2011. But that is a really good question. Well, I mean, part of the... Uh... You know, part of the story as you're reading the the novel, it's not just about you know the the UFOs and the and the society that that Danny joins, but it's it's more about how it reflects himself personally and the struggles that he goes through in his own life. And we're talking, we were talking a little bit in the first segment about the idea of UFOs being a embodiment of that uh, of that mythology of that way of of looking inward at yourself. Um, and it's still we're meeting a lot of skepticism here, and I'm trying to get some of the people in the chat room to actually call in, and you can do so at one eight seven seven nine nine six fourteen twenty or five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred because what they're saying is uh, you know with your beliefs in what UFOs are, uh, how can you discount the physical evidence that's been uh, garnered over the years? Okay, I have become the sort of person which when I was Danny's age. I found absolutely infuriating. And that's the dogmatic skeptic. The person who can't explain every UFO sighting, but who works on the assumption that it's pretty unlikely that any of them is something genuinely beyond the explanatory power of science. Okay. Okay, and I'm aware that there's a certain dogmatism involved there. Uh, I can point to a recent experience I had in which, uh, this was about five or six years ago, my wife and I were walking uh, out at night by an illuminated building in, in the town where we live, and uh, we looked up and we saw lights darting about in the skies. It was the most bizarre thing i didn't know what the heck that was and after a minute my wife said they're birds and i looked and i saw yeah they were birds with the with, with, with lights reflecting off them and i didn't have any uh, any depth perception i assumed they were much farther away than they were and therefore much bigger than they were now that case is solved, and the solution is really pretty banal. But if she hadn't been there, I don't know if I would have figured it out. And I would have walked home, and I wouldn't have known what to do with those lights. And I don't know that anybody else who hadn't been there could figure that one out. So I work on the assumption, and I can give you my grounds for that assumption, that even the most puzzling-seeming cases are probably soluble in physical terms. Now, where they get interesting to me is where we start projecting things on to the physical phenomenon. That, to me, is the real UFO mystery. Not what are UFOs or where do they come from, but what do they mean. Well, but also at the same time, when people have had these serious uh, 
instances where they have been abducted, where they have been taking taken aboard craft, where they've been physically accosted and and they've been you know uh, put on the Group W bench. <laughs> yeah. it, it seems like there is uh, such a profoundness to those experiences that uh, you can't discount that at least they believe that that actually happened to them. Oh yeah, and I I, I think there is something powerful going on in the UFO abduction experience. Those people have cer- certainly have a sense that they've experienced something. Now, where that comes from, I don't know. I think one clue for me is that the abduction experiences involve a very strong element of sex and generally quite unpleasant sexuality. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to the beginning of the abduction tradition with Betty and Barney Hill, who it's a, it's a really very interesting case, and we, we, we could talk a lot more about it. And I suspect that something of what's going on here deals with people's sexual impulses or possibly, indeed, some sort of sexual abuse that they suffer. Now, is that the whole explanation? Probably not. I think there's more to it. But I would look, and I guess call this dogmatic if you like, but it seems to me that the way we need to look is in terms of the experiencers and not of a phenomenon beyond them that they experience, unless you want to call which I think you could very possibly, the collective unconscious, a phenomenon beyond them. And you, you make a little bit of a reference to this in, in the book, uh, but I've, I've been thinking over the, the past few years as I've learned more about this topic uh, through the course of the show and through my own studying, uh, I almost see a lot of this abduction phenomena as being the modernized version of the, the incubus and the succubus tales. You know, it's, yeah, I- I think they have a lot. I, I, I certainly think there's a connection with that. Uh, to me, well, I, I, I spoke to you. I, I spoke about this form of Jewish mysticism. It's called Merkava mysticism, and what it seems to involve is people feeling themselves journeying toward the chariot that Ezekiel saw. Merkava is the Hebrew word for chariot, and. At times you have very close parallels, like that what people experience, what the Merkava mystics experience as the most terrifying part of the experience is the enormous eyes of the creatures they encounter. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the abduction stories, the eyes are all over the place. I mean, you get that on the cover of Whitley Strieber's Communion. From 1987, those huge, bizarre, uh, pupilless eyes, and those crop up in these mystical texts. It's, it's from also 1500 years ago. It's the only paperback book that I've ever purchased and then intentionally ripped the front cover off of <laughs> because I didn't, I didn't want to see that on my bookshelf. Yes, 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 and I mean, there's lots of stories. People see that cover. And they begin to remember their own experiences. So that there, there's something about that face on the communion cover that evokes 
something deep within many people who see it. And I'm fascinated every Halloween that I, 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 I go into the, the stores and what, 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 what do you see in the, the, the Halloween menagerie? You've got ghosts, goblins, witches, spiders, vampires. Uh, I mean, practically belong to the club. You, you, you have to be at least a few hundred years old, with one exception, and that's the UFO alien. Well, I think, too, that when, when you look back and you see the, the, the people, the, the experiencers, the abductees that you're talking about, and, and if you dig into that, you know, you hear a lot of these connotations of, of exactly what you're talking about. I know people who have investigated UFO abductions from a skeptical point of view and from a true believer point of view that have both come back and said to me, hey, it's, it's completely possible that this abduction experience that they're describing is a cover for a more traumatic experience that they, they can't let the person that was close to them uh, be seen in that light. So instead, they're putting that onto this UFO experience. And, and I guess you're referring to some sort of sexual abuse. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes real good sense to me in that it explains this tremendous sexual component, which otherwise you've got to come up with what to me are very implausible hypotheses of alien genetic experimentation. But let me, tell, let, let me suggest another dimension, which goes back to the Betty and Barney Hill case. That the, 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 and this was really, this was the first abduction story in the modern mold, including including the way the story comes to the surface, that Betty and Barney, they knew they'd had a, some sort of an experience at the end in late 1961 with a mysterious light, but it wasn't until the beginning of 1964 when they were put in, under hypnosis by a Boston psychiatrist that they began to remember the details of being stopped, taken aboard this alien craft, uh, Barney experiences a cup put over his genitalia, which clearly comes from something inside him because well before the hypnosis, he developed a per an almost perfect ring of warts around his groin. Betty remembers a needle being pushed through her navel. Now, the, one pe the piece of information that many people know but many, many also don't know is that this was a mixed-race couple. Mm -hmm. Barney was black and Betty was white. And they experience, Barney experiences something like castration. And Betty experiences something like an attempt to kill whatever fetus the black man has implanted within her. This has been pointed out by some other people, but I would carry it one step further. If I want to, if I try to imagine how Barney Hill's ancestors came to this country, I would imagine they were abducted in the middle of the night and carried off to a waiting ship. And, um, I mean, in some ways this seems as incredible as intergalactic visitors, but it's something that I'm much more prepared to accept, wild as it is, and that is that somehow this traumatic memory was transmitted through the generations to Barney 
that it came out under hypnosis in a Boston psychiatrist's office in 1964 and penetrated into the culture that had wronged Barney. Hmm. And I think you can find other, I mean, the, 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 the three men in black, where do they come from? That they come from a book called They Know Too Much About Flying Saucers by the great mythmaker of Clarksburg, uh, West Virginia, Gray Barker, who wrote this. This is the book, by the way, that persuaded me to believe in UFOs. They knew too much about flying saucers. This book with tremendous emotional authenticity about a secret that is so terrible that you need three men in black to keep it from being revealed. Now, Gray Barker had a secret which, in the context of West Virginia in the middle of the 20th century, was terrible, and that is that he was a gay man. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that Barker took his trauma, the wrong that was done to him, and transmitted it to the culture that had wronged him. And lo and behold, the men in black, I mean, become part of uh, part of our traditional folklore. I mean, there is some danger in, um, I don't want to say attacking, but there is some danger into calling in the... Uh, calling into question the credibility of those who are reporting it. I mean, uh, anybody who's read Gray Barker's work knows that it's, you, you know, you're not looking at somebody who is a, a, a complete and total scientific documentarian. A lot of it is embellished, and it's embellished for the story. Uh, but when you start attaching, you know, basically you're not doing your job as a, as a, as a, as a chronicler, as a reporter, if you, start, if you are starting to put those subjective things in. Um, and if it is something that's happening subconsciously, how come they couldn't realize it when they were uh, putting their works together? How come they couldn't realize, hey, wait a minute, this is myself I'm talking about here? Because that's the blindness that they need to have. You, you kind of need to keep those blinders on to... to exactly. Otherwise, other, uh, otherwise, the, otherwise it is just too painful to live with. I mean, Barney had a... I, I mean, you, if you read the transcripts, of uh, of, the, of his hypnotic sessions with Benjamin Simon, it's clear that his his being marginalized as a black man in nineteen in, in uh, mid century America was something that that, that 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 preyed on his mind continually, and I think that that, that to realize the depth of it would have been horribly dangerous. I think, in fact, it did kill him. He died of a stroke at age 46 in February 1969, five years almost to the day after his memories began to emerge. I think that there are some things that you cannot face without tremendous risk, as Barney showed, even to life and limb. Well, uh, one of the questions, and we have a, f a phone call here, too, and I want to take that in a second, but one of the questions that keeps popping up in the chat room is when there are these mass sightings, uh, when there are you know, many hundreds of people who have seen the same sightings, or in the case of something like the Phoenix Lights, thousands of people who have seen the same thing. And if it really is just this uh, projection, this uh, you know, modern-day 
Bible type vision, how can you explain so many people having the experience? I have to assume that they saw something mm-hmm. which they're projecting onto. I don't know what that something is. Okay. Well, why don't we take this call here before we run out of time? Uh, we have about eight minutes left, so if you want to call in, 877 877- 996-1420 or 996-0500. Those are the numbers. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast with David Halpern. How are you doing? Hey, Tim. It's Mike in Easton. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. I hey, how are you? was going to ask a question, but you just put it up. What about the mass sightings? <laughs> and then uh, Dave in the chat room just brought up, what about the implants, too? They can't all be faking that, or have the implants been, been disproved? Uh, my sense is that when you try to pin down just what those implants are, they become tremendously elusive. Uh, you mean when you try to figure out what purpose they serve? Well, I mean, to, to try to get to retrieve from the bodies of the abductees something that is genuinely and clearly alien. I don't think there's a single case in which something has been retrieved that could not come from this planet. I mean, if you do, te- if you know of one, tell me. Well, I mean, Dr. Well, no, Dr. Dr. Roger Lear is... Uh, but I'm sorry. just wondering if one's been medically taken out and identified as to being a metal from this planet or another planet, or where? what is it exactly? Okay, I mean, I, I am not aware of any cases in which there is something that's been retrieved that's genuinely inexplicable. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I mean, I know that Dr. Roger Lear has uh, done a, a lot of work in removing these implants, but like you said, they're, they're materials that could have come from this, from this earth. Yeah. I mean, and if we're dealing, uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with something that's been around for more than 60 years. Does it make sense that no unambiguous evidence of its unearthly origin would have come to light? in those 60 years. This, this lapse of time is my essential reason for not being willing to credit the idea that we're dealing with something genuinely extraterrestrial. Surely something would have, it would have manifested itself in some unambiguous way in those two generations. All right, well, we do have another call here. Let's take this one really quickly because we are up against the clock. Uh, good, thanks, Mark. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast with David Halpern. How are you doing? Hey, what, what's going on, Tim? Hey, John. What's, are you guys uh, still on? Yeah, we were actually, yeah, we're kind of in the middle of a discussion, so we'll have to check in with you. I'll, I'll give you a buzz next week, and we can talk about well, what's going on. All right, no problem, man. All right, thanks. All right, see you. Bye-bye. Sorry, that's our friend John Brightman down at the Phenomenology. Fem- fem- I'm not going to pronounce it right. Phenomenology conference uh, down in Gettysburg. Uh, one question that does keep popping up uh, is about the Travis Walton case. Uh, are you familiar with that case, David? Uh, yeah, from 1973. Mm-hmm. And then for those who aren't, it's you know the movie fire and the movie in the book Fire in the Sky were based on this case. Um, but I mean, in terms of, it seems like a very vivid, uh, very strong experience that happened uh, to Travis and, and the others. But, yeah, I know Philip Kloss has argued that it was a hoax, that they had some very, some fairly strong uh, terrestrial motivations for wanting to fabricate it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And by and large, when we're dealing with the abductions, I don't, I'm willing to credit that the experience is a genuine experience. 
And I think that's what a lot of the people who are questioning this uh, are losing sight of, that, you know, you're not saying that they don't have this experience. You're just doubting that it's from these extraterrestrials that are coming from another planet. Yeah. I mean, inner space to me is every bit as mysterious and baffling as outer space. I mean, we have we have the most incredible, unexplored worlds just inside us. And that's just us as individuals, even if you don't accept the Jungian view that we all plug in to something that's deeper and wider. So, yeah, I think there's, there's something real there. There's something tremendously mysterious there. It's just that I think when we look into the sky and into outer space, we're looking in the wrong direction, that UFOs come from inner space, not from outer. Well, the book is called Journal of a UFO Investigator. Uh, David Halpern is the author. It's his first novel, but if you can keep creating characters as interesting as some of these characters, I see a a long and prosperous career ahead of you uh, in, in that field. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for having me here. All right. You have a great night, and hopefully we'll talk again sometime in the future. Well, thank you so much. Have a great evening. Take care. Bye-bye. That is David Halpern. You can go to his website, davidhalpern.net. It's also linked up on the main page of SpookySouthCoast.com as well. And, uh, and for those of you who are listening to this now and, and uh, you know, you're hearing it at, at face value, you know, taking on the surface of, of uh, what David was saying, go back, give the show another listen when the podcast is up or when the uh, on-demand video is available. And just, you know, take a step back and realize that he's not discrediting these experiences that people have had, but he's questioning whether or not they are beings from another planet. And I, you know, I do the same myself quite a bit. I find myself going back and, and thinking that as well. And, um, you know, uh, Matt Moniz, if he was here, he would have brought up a lot more physical evidence and a lot more of uh, that information than I know offhand. But, uh, and he certainly would have uh, had more information about Travis Walton because the two of them are, uh, are friendly and they've been close in the past. So it's something that uh, definitely bears in mind and something that we talk about all the time off the air. You know, the idea that it could be uh, just modern-day mythology. And is this, are these experiences that we're having now with ghosts, with UFOs, with aliens, with Bigfoot, with all these things, similar to what people felt with, you know, uh, fairies and other type creatures, you know, hundreds of years ago. So food for thought until next week's show. We'll be back then. I want to thank John Brightman for broadcasting from Gettysburg this weekend. I want to thank our friend Tom D'Agostino out there at the Haunted Victorian Mansion in Gardner, Moniz over at Lizzie Borden's. Sorry that we couldn't get involved with everybody and get them all into the show tonight, but the Red Sox put us up against the clock the whole time. We'll be back next week. Uh, We've got uh, another great show planned, so uh, we want you all to come back then. And until then, for Matt Moniz, for Matt Costa, for Chris Balzano, I'm Tim Weisberg. And we want you all to stay spooktacular.